One thing I noticed about people is everyone seems to love love. That's pretty much true. Everyone seems to love romance, just about everybody. And uh, there's some people right now who are in this room who are in a romantic relationship with one another. There are some married people in this room. There are some people who awkwardly thought, oh, were you just talking about me just now? Does he know? No, I don't, I don't know anything. But uh, yeah, maybe some of you are boyfriend and girlfriend. Maybe some of you are not in romantic relationships, but you'd like to be. That's where a lot of people live, kind of in that zone of like, yeah, I would. If somebody liked me, I would probably like them back. But right now, it doesn't seem like they like me back, so it's not like it's that serious. Others of you might be in a spot where you feel like you've had a couple conversations with someone you like, and it's like, it seems like they like me. It seems like I kind of like them. I don't know. Are we a thing? Are we boyfriend and girlfriend? We haven't talked about it. Then you have your DTR. DTR is called defining the relationship. When you sit down, you're like, what are we? Are we like boyfriend, girlfriend? Are we like, are we legit? Are we actually together? And then you define your relationship, and then you're like dating, right? But you know things get serious when the guy goes and he buys a ring. Okay, here's why you know it's serious, because he can take you to Chipotle, he can take you to a movie, those are small investments, right? 20 bucks here, 40 bucks there. You know, if he's going to go buy an engagement ring for you, bigger investment, right? You're thinking, hmm, that's pretty cool. Man, a couple thousand dollars on a little rock that goes on a little ring that goes on your finger that you're going to wear for the rest of your life, it, it, it better be worth it. So, some of these guys, what they do is, and this is what I've done, this is what everybody who's married in this room, they go out and they pick out a ring. And they make it specially for the girl. They, they kind of have to ask, what size are you? By the way, um, maybe that's not a question you should ask in high school, but you should probably know, guys, this is just a long-term piece of advice for you. Know what size ring your girlfriend, who's going to be your fiance, is so you don't have to go ask and say, hey, by the way, what's your ring size when you buy a ring for her the next week? You want, that's just information you kind of want to know about your girlfriend before proposing. So anyway, that when, what guys do is they get the ring, and they get it all ready, and then they drop to one knee, and they ask the question, will you marry me? And if you were to ask that question without an engagement ring, it'd kind of be awkward. Like, are you joking? Like, where's the ring? You know, sometimes what guys do, and this is also something you shouldn't do, uh, guys, but sometimes what guys do is they drop down to one knee, and they're like, hey, um, Oh, sorry, I got to tie my shoe. And then it gets the girls all like, oh, I thought you were going to propose. And you do it enough times, you become the boy who cries wolf. And then she won't believe you when you actually propose. But imagine someone proposed without a ring. Now, it's happened before. People do it. But it's hard to take it seriously because you're thinking, is this legit? Is he actually serious? But when the ring's there and you're staring at that diamond and thinking, is this going to be the ring that's going to sit on my finger for the rest of my life? That's a big deal. It's a big deal because that guy had to pay a lot for it. It's a big deal because it symbolizes something that you're going to promise to be together. It's permanent, right? And although that, that diamond ring might not be permanent, it's a symbol of permanence. And without that big investment, you're not so sure um, it's, it's going to go down. Basically, what I'm saying is anytime someone makes a promise to you, it's good for them to have things that back it up with some guarantees, it's good to have something there that says, yeah, they're serious about this. I guess if a guy was to propose and to never give his girlfriend or fiance an engagement ring, probably not good with that relationship, right? That engagement ring says something. It communicates something. Here's what I'm trying to get at. Um, when God makes promises that are big promises, they're sometimes hard for us to believe. Actually, his biggest promises about our lives are very hard for us to believe if we don't have some assurances, 
If God doesn't give us something now to say, hey, I promise something to you, and I'm going to give you this right now for you to have right now so that every time you doubt my promises in the future, you can say, this is what I've given you to prove it. A lot like an engagement ring. Now, you might be thinking, what am I talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. The biggest promise that God makes in all of the Bible is that he can take care of your sin problem. If you think about that, that's a huge thing that God's promising, that he's promising for some people to forgive them completely, to never count their sins against them, to take care of sin, to take care of the problem of death. The Bible actually promises to those same people that God will not only remove the fear of death from you, but he will take away the sting of death, which means you, when you die, you'll be removed from this body, your broken body will die, and you will get a brand new body that will be perfect, beautiful, glorious, strong, enduring, and it will last forever, and you will live in a perfect new world. Now, if someone makes a promise like that to you, you might be thinking, is that too good to be true? It's a great question. Well, God does something in the text that we're going to look at today to prove to you, I'm serious about the promise I'm making to you. I could not be more serious, and he gives some assurances. I'd love for you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, because that's what this text is all about. The last three weeks, we've been studying this section that's really like a big worship song to God. In fact, the song that we just sang, Come Praise and Glorify, I don't know if you noticed that, but verse 1 is all about the first sermon we talked about. Verses 3 to 6, talking about what God does in choosing his people. Verse 2 of that song we sang was all about how the Son came to redeem us with his blood and to include us in his plan of salvation. And then the third verse was all about this text that we're looking at today. So I'm glad we sang it this morning because it's super helpful. We're looking at verses 13 and 14. Only two verses this morning, but these might be the most comforting verses in the whole section because God's saying, I'm proving to you that you belong to me. When you want to doubt that I'm going to take care of the sin problem, I did something to make it very obvious that you could look at, so to speak, like an engagement ring to remember, nope, he made a promise to me, and that promise will be fulfilled. If you're in Ephesians 1, 13, look up one verse real quick, because this will set us in the context. It says in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, who's he talking about? Well, Paul's ta- including himself in that, but I think he's also including the Jewish Christians who heard the gospel and believed in Jesus near the beginning of church history. Okay? So he's saying, I and my fellow Jewish people, and we, we are to the praise of his glory. Okay? Now, here's the problem. If we read this, you're probably not Jewish. I'm not Jewish. Right? Even if you are Jewish, you didn't live in the first century. You didn't see Jesus walk around. You didn't know his apostles. So the question is, okay, Paul said we are to the praise of his glory, but what about me? Right? The Gentiles were thinking, well, what about me? Am I to the praise of his glory? Can, can I be as confident in my salvation as you are, Paul? And that's a question a lot of high schoolers have. That's why I love this text for us this morning. A lot of people think, well, I know some people say I know I'm a Christian, but I don't think I can be totally sure, can I? This text says, yes, you can be totally sure. You can leave today being fully assured, I am in God's family. He will take care of the problem of sin. He will take care of the problem of death, and I am 100% sure. That's seriously important for us. I think it's Couldn't be more important for us this morning, which is why verse 13 says, this is Paul talking to these Gentile Christians now. He shifts a little bit. He says, in him, in Christ, you also. So he was talking about we, right, his group of people, the Jews, the people who believe first. He says, yeah, we're to the praise of his glory. We know we belong to God. And then Paul says, but not just us, also you. 
you Gentiles, people who believed after, people who became Christians later on, and you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Right? That's very important. He says, when you heard the gospel, you knew the truth about God, about sin, about our problem of, of sin and death, and you understood the fact that Jesus can come and take care of that problem. You heard that, but then you also believed in him. So he's talking to Christians. He's talking to, like, like if I'm talking to a group like this, some of you are Christians, some of you are not, right? Some of you have heard the truth, some of you have never heard the truth. Most of you have heard the truth, but not all of you have trusted in Jesus for salvation. So he's saying, hey, to you guys who heard the truth, you understood it, and you trusted in Jesus for salvation, guess what happened on the other side of events? That's what you did. You heard and you believed, but what did God do when you heard and believed? Look at the next line. It says, when you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Right? This is where uh, grammar, I know it's Sunday morning, but grammar is important to understand. Okay? Do you notice how it says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him? The word heard and the word believed are the two things that the Ephesians did. That's like if I'm talking to you, hey, if you look back to when you became a Christian, here's what happened. You heard and you believed. Who did the hearing? Who did the believing? You did. Okay? So you can look back and say, I, used, I heard and I believed. That's something that I did. It's an active word. Okay? Now the word sealed is also a verb, but it's not an active verb. It's a passive verb. That means it's something happened to you. So here's what I'm trying to get at. What is the human response that can assure our salvation? Well, I heard and believed. Well, what happens when you hear and when you believe? God does something to you. So the third verb is, is the word sealed. Now, that's a word we don't use very often. Um, but that word basically means that God took you and he, he stamped his press on you to, to say you're his. So seal in the ancient days, similar to what you might find um, at an arts and crafts shop. They still sell seals today. So if you take a letter, let's just say, and you take some hot wax and you melt it with a candle or something like that, and then you put the wax on the, on the envelope, right, where the, where the, you know, now we just seal things with, you lick the envelope and it seals and it's all gross. But if you don't want to do that and you want to be all fancy, you can take some hot wax, melt it. You notice that I've never done this before, so I'm trying to explain something I've never done. But you, you melt it on the envelope, and then you take something like a, like a ring or like some kind of press that maybe has a letter, like your, like your initials or whatever, and you press it into the hot wax, what happens? It leaves an imprint. You take that press off. Now there's a letter or some initials or something like that. And what does that seal do? Well, it does a couple things. It signifies who it came from, right? It's your seal that made that mark. So the letter came from you. But what else does it do? It takes whatever's inside and says, you're there. You're not going anywhere, right? The seal would have to be broken in order for you to get out. Let's say you were in the envelope, right? It's kind of an odd thought. But if a seal goes on that, you're, you're stuck, right? Sometimes we use seals if you're, like, maybe your job involves you packing up boxes or whatever, right? If you send packages out, you put seals on things. And it says, this is sealed, right? Uh, even DoorDash and Uber Eats, right? They put that little sticker on that says, nobody's been inside of this thing, right? And it was put by a very important Chipotle worker, right? Something like that, right? That's a seal, so what does the seal say? Well, it says that whatever's inside is safe, and it says who it belongs to or where it came from. So here's what God is saying. When you heard the word of truth, when you believed in Jesus, here's what God did. God put a seal on you. He said, you belong to me now, and you're safe with me now. You're secure in me now. And you might say, well, what's the seal? Look what he goes on to say. He tells us what the seal is. He says, you were sealed with the promised 
Holy Spirit. Here's the difference between Christians and non-Christians in the room right now, okay? If you have God's Holy Spirit in your life transforming you, that's what you're supposed to look at and say, that's the engagement ring. That's what makes me confident. I know I'm saved because I can look and I can see how God's Spirit has changed me. That's assurance. That's a promise. He says, when you heard and you believed, you were sealed by God with the promised Holy Spirit. He goes on, he says, the Spirit who, verse 14, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Okay, So acquiring possession of it, that's the same word as redemption from the last text that we looked at last time. He says, until the day when you get your brand new body and you live in this brand new world and you enjoy all the benefits of eternal life, until that day, what's the promise that you can look at? What's your engagement ring that you can stare down and say, I know I'm going to get that. I know God keeps his promises, and I can be assured he's going to keep the promise to me. What's the seal? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. It's God's Spirit in your life working, which is a topic sometimes you don't talk about because there's so many abuses uh, of the topic of the Holy Spirit, right? God the Spirit, this is a person, this is not a force, this is not some kind of principle or idea, uh, but, but God the Spirit works in the heart of every person who's truly saved, which is why I can't believe that you're really saved if there's no work of the Spirit in your life. I just can't believe it, right? Because this text says everyone, whether you're a Jew, a Gentile, whether you're born 100 years ago or born in 100 years, if you hear the word of truth, you believe in Christ, God seals you with the Spirit. And if there's no evidence of God's Spirit, then we can't be assured. But the whole point is not to make you less assured. The whole point is to say, hey, if you're a Christian, you should be assured. Look at God's Spirit. He's worked in your life. You know that repentance that took place? You couldn't have done that on your own. God's Spirit was doing that in you. You know how you have more self-control? You see how you're obeying your parents more? You couldn't have done that on your own. You were being rebellious, but God changed you. Look at that. Like, look what God did. Do you see? That should be assuring to us to say, just like Paul was confident, when I die, I'm not afraid of death because I know God's got a perfect plan for me in eternity. I know it. I don't have to be scared. I don't have to be worried. How can you have that same assurance? You say, I see the Holy Spirit working in my life. I know that might be complicated or confusing, but that's what this text is getting at. It's meant to be a comfort for us. That's why if you're a real Christian, I want you to be totally confident that you're saved for eternity. I want you to be completely confident if you're really a Christian. If you're not a Christian, I want this text to show you, hey, I don't have this assurance. Maybe I'm not right with God. This is one of those sermons, I know, but, but you got a couple points there, four points, but there's a line above it, which I think is super important for you to understand and write down. So everyone's going to write this down on the top of your page. Here's what it says. I want you to be confident that you are saved for eternity, and then I want you to put dot, 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 okay? So we're going to have four points this morning. Two of them are going to be ifs, conditionals, right? And two of them are going to be because, okay? The two ifs come in verse 13, I want you to be confident you're saved for eternity if the first thing here is true. Point number one is this. If you've heard the gospel of Jesus. Right? This is not all. We've got to put these things together. But this is the first step in this. Okay? So you think inversely, don't be confident you're saved for eternity if you've never heard the good news, the gospel of Jesus. You can't be saved without at least hearing the truth. Now, is hearing enough? No, hearing's not enough. But that's the first step here. Once you write that down, be confident you're saved for eternity if you have heard the gospel of Jesus. Once you write that down, I want you to turn your Bibles to the left, to the book of Romans. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 10. This passage is so helpful because I think it, it clears up. It takes like this one little sentence that we have in Ephesians 1.13, and it expands it to like five or ten verses, which is what we're going to look at. 
he gives more explanation on what he's talking about, which is why it's good for us. I know sometimes we don't turn to different passages in the scripture, but it's really good for you to take what Paul is writing and cross-reference it with the other things that he says, because he explains himself more fully in other passages. One time he does that is right here in Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, if you're in Romans 10, look at verse 9. Romans 10, 9. Paul explains some things to these Christians, which again, these are mostly Gentile Christians. It's a mixed church, Jews and Gentiles. Now, we don't think that's significant, but they did. Because if you're a Jew back then, you're the one that all this salvation was promised to. If you're a Gentile, you're an outsider. Right? We just don't understand that. Um, you're an outsider. You're someone who didn't grow up in church. You're like, am I even supposed to be included in this? Here's what Paul says. Yes. Yes, you are. You are supposed to be included in this. But there's some conditions. Look at verse 9. This is Romans 10, 9. He says, because, and he's quoting some passages before this from the Old Testament, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay? So this is some explanation, some further things. Like, what am I supposed to hear? What am I supposed to believe? Well, you, you got to believe the facts about Jesus, that Jesus is God, that Jesus came from God, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, and that he rose again. This is just shorthand for saying that. Okay. Keep reading. It says in verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Okay. That's just the external show. Like, hey, if I trust something in my heart, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about it. Okay. He's not saying you have to say particular words out loud to be saved. Right? Clearly, the rest of Scripture is telling you you're saved when you trust in Christ. Right? But when you trust in Christ, what starts happening? You're confessing, hey, Jesus is Lord. We had some people maybe there back in Rome who might have said they believed in Christ, but they were afraid to open their mouth, right? They, they wouldn't open their mouth. They wouldn't say Jesus is Lord. But when they had to say Caesar is Lord, they said, yeah, Caesar is Lord. Uh, they were, were afraid to say that Jesus was Lord. This is saying, no, no, saved people say Jesus is my God. He's the Lord. Okay, go on. It says, um, verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Okay? Now, that might not be a big statement for us because we don't have the Jew-Gentile problem, but that is huge in the New Testament. These Gentiles felt like, are we second-class Christian? Right? It might be similar to this today. It's not the same thing, but it's similar. Right? If you say um, the Jews are like the people who grew up in church, whose you know, parents go to church, they're saved, you know, they grew up in Awana, they studied the verses, and then the Gentiles are the people who are just getting added on later right? It's like, well, do I belong? Like, am I allowed to be a part of all this? Can I have the same assurance as the person who grew up in all this? Guess what Paul keeps saying? Yes. If, you're, if you call on him, right? It, it, it's a matter of if you hear the gospel and call on Jesus. He goes on. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a quotation from the Old Testament. That comes from Joel 2, right? So it's, we're quoting the Old Testament a lot here, but look at verse number 14. He says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Right? Think that through. How can someone call on the name of Jesus if they don't believe in him first? Right? Notice what happens. It's like you hear the truth first, then you believe in him next, and then you call on him and say, Jesus, I believe in you. You can save me from my sin. I, I trust you. Right? That's kind of the order of how these things go. And he's working backwards. He says, how can they call on him if they've not believed first? And how are they to believe in him if they've never heard about Jesus? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Which is why what happens on Sunday mornings, what happens around your um, breakfast table, if you've got Christian parents, is one of the most important things in this world. 
if, if you hear the gospel, that is so important, right? You cannot be saved without first believing. You can't believe without hearing, and you can't hear without someone telling you the truth, right? Because this is not something you come to on your own. This is not something that I've just come to on my own. I had to be taught this. I had to hear this. I had to study this in the Bible. He says, how can they believe if no one's ever preached to them? Verse 15, and how are they to preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, this is another Old Testament reference, Lord, who's believed what they heard from us? He's basically saying not every time we share the truth with people, they don't always accept it. They don't always believe in Jesus. But verse 17 is kind of the, the, the crux of all this. So look down at verse 17. If you got your Bible, this is a good one to highlight. This is a good one to underline. Here's what it says. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, okay? So how can we be saved? How can we have faith? Well, where does it come from? What well, comes from hearing, okay? But not just hearing, hearing the word of Christ, which is why Paul says back in our text, okay, here's how you can be confident. You heard the word of truth, the same word of truth that Paul heard, the same word of truth that the first Christians heard, you can be confident. But it's not just that, right? And n- nobody here would say, oh yeah, all I gotta do is hear the truth, right? You guys probably know better than that. It's not just about knowing the truth or hearing the truth. You gotta believe the truth. That's the second thing. Point number two is this. Be confident you're saved for eternity if you've trusted in Jesus to be saved. Be confident that you're saved for eternity if you have trusted in Jesus to be saved. The Bible could not be more clear about that. There's a lot of people who hear. I want you to imagine for a second um, all the people at the time of Jesus who saw his miracles, who heard his teaching. Do you know how many people out of the thousands and thousands of people that he fed, that he did miracles for, that he preached to. I mean, scriptures probably added up to tens of thousands of people. How many of them believed in him and were following him by the time he left? Like 120, or maybe up to 500. That's about it. Okay. Very, very small amounts actually believed in him. And they were there seeing Jesus. What happens next is in the book of Acts, people start believing because guess what? God's spirit starts working on people's hearts even more, and more people start believing. But here's the point. Just hearing Jesus is not enough to be saved. In fact, most people who heard Jesus, like literally talk, did not get saved. That's why a lot of people who grow up in church, they don't get saved because they don't trust in Christ. If you trusted anything other than Christ, you're not saved. Here's what I mean. It's like this. I saw a video on, on Twitter the other day. It's a good start to any um, example. But I saw a video on Twitter. And it was all these different cars testing their self-driving capabilities, right? And what they did was they put these, like, four little dummies. They were, like, child-sized dummies in a line, right? So they had one for the Tesla, one for the Ford, one for, like, the Subaru or whatever, uh, one for the really nice, like, the Porsche. And they t- tested all their stopping capabilities, Right? So the video is kind of funny, right? Because it's like all these cars are like speeding right towards the camera, right? They're all coming down, right? And imagine all these cars are coming. And when they see the kid, right, they all start stopping, right? All of them but one. The Ford stops. The Porsche stops. All these nice cars stops. And the Tesla just straight up barrels and just like barrels through this little dummy, right? And it was like a little kid. So a kid went flying, right? Obviously, it's not a real child, right? So we can kind of laugh and say, wow, that's crazy. But uh, the little sack of potatoes thing just went flying. I thought, man, you know what? This is why I don't think 
for a long time, I would, I would not trust the self-driving car, right? I just don't think I can get in the passenger seat of a car, even if I'm an old man, right? I just don't think I can sit in the passenger seat and say, okay, let my car drive me, because I just don't trust it, right? It would take a high level of trust to sit in that passenger seat and just trust that your little, uh, you know, self-driving Tesla won't, you know, run into a kid or a brick wall. Because, you know, if it can't see the little kid, it's also not going to see, you know, things that jump in the, in the, in the lane. It's not going to see other cars. So it kind of freaked me out and made me distrust um, ever getting in a self-driving car, right? Um, but I would think that some of you would trust it enough, right? Some of you would trust that self-driving car enough to get in. And here's my point. Um, in order to really trust it, that car, you have to be willing to get in right? You have to be willing to get in because you could stand back and I can say, yeah, I guess in general, I trust the car. I mean, not completely, but I kind of trust that it will work and it will go and I trust it in general. There's a very different level of trust to get in and say, I'm in this thing now. That's full trust. That's the confidence in Jesus we're talking about. And here's what I mean. There's a lot of people right now in this room who, if I asked you, hey, do you think Jesus has saved me from my sin? Do you think John is going to heaven? Do you really believe that? A lot of you would say, yes, I do believe that. Then if I asked you the same question, do you believe Jesus could save you? A lot of you answer the question, no, I I don't think he would. I don't think he can or or that he would. Um, That's very different to say I'm willing to trust in Jesus completely and and get in, which is why, do you notice what what word is used all the time? If you're back in Ephesians, look what it says in verse number 13 in him. Look what it says in verse 11, in him. It's all over the text, in him. Verse number seven, in him we have redemption. It's all over the place in this text of Ephesians, right? The whole point is you need to be in Christ. How do you get in Christ? Well, it's by trusting in him. That's what I'm talking about. Ephesians 2 says that you can't be saved by your works, Right? You don't get in Christ by being a better person first and then hoping that Jesus will accept you later. Right? You get accepted first and your life changes as a result. Right? That's how this all works. Some of you are afraid to get in Christ because you think, well, I'm not worthy to get in Christ. That's, that's the whole point. Every last one of you is unworthy to get in Christ. I'm unworthy to be in Christ. But that's how this works. You accept Jesus first. You trust in him first. You call on him first for salvation. And then he starts changing you. He gives you the seal of his spirit at the very moment you trust in him. And then your life starts changing, right? That's how it works. Colossians 1 says something very similar. Colossians 1.21 says, And you, who were once alienated, separated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if... It says if, doesn't say everyone's saved. He says if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Right? So he says, look, you're saved, but you, you've got to trust in Jesus. It, if you turn your back and say, yeah, I don't trust in Jesus anymore. I, I, that's, that stuff's not for me. Well, then I can't say, oh yeah, you, you're saved. But here's the thing about this trust. When you trust in Christ for real, with your whole heart, God does something. God seals you, and in that moment, right, which is what our text gets at, once you hear and believe, God does something. He seals you. That's point number three. Okay? I want you to write this down. Point number three, 
want you to be confident you're saved for eternity because the Holy Spirit proves you belong to God. Okay? So if those first two things are true, if you've really heard the truth and you've really believed in the truth, God does something. So the first two are like, what's the human response to the gospel? Well, I got to hear and I got to believe. Okay? But then what happens when you hear and when you believe? God does something. I mentioned the grammar of all this. Um, it's interesting because in the original text, the word believe and the word sealed are back to back. But the word to believe is an aorist active indicative. Okay? That, that just basically means um, it's something that you were doing in the past. Like you have been believing. Okay? Once that happens, the next thing is an air of pass, aorist passive. Okay? And the passive, basically what that means is, is that in a moment, the word aorist is a Greek tense. We don't have it in English, but it describes a pinpoint action, right? So if you look at a participle or something like that, that's an ongoing. If you look at an imperfect, that's ongoing past action. But when you say an aorist, that's like a pinpoint, like something happened, okay? Here's what he's saying. When you believed in the past, God did something at a pinpoint time. He sealed you when you heard and when you believed. Here's what it's trying to get at. God has given you his Holy Spirit who now indwells in you when you believe. That's supposed to be assuring to you. But the problem is, if you look back and say, there is no evidence of God's spirit in my life from the point of when I said I believed. Some of you say, maybe I believed when I was nine. Some of you say, I believed when I was 12. Some of you said, I believed when I was 14. Others of you don't even know because you felt like you believed in him your whole life. Okay, here's the point. Is God's spirit in your life right now working on your heart? Okay. That's supposed to be the assurance. But what you can look back and say is, even if you don't know the exact time when it happened, there was an exact time when it happened. That's what this text is saying. There was a pinpoint time in history when God said, I'm going to enjoy you with my spirit. That didn't happen over the course of time. It didn't happen from your birth, right? It happened sometime after. Even if you can't say, I know exactly the day and time. Some of you can look back and say, I know exactly when it happened. That's when I repented my sin. I I'm confident of that. The point is you're supposed to look at not the time when it happened to find assurance. Because some of you look at a time of an emotional experience. That's not supposed to give you assurance. What's supposed to give you assurance is, is God's spirit working on my life right now? That's the engagement ring. That's the thing you're supposed to look down at and say, I'm confident that God will keep his promises. The Holy Spirit is called a seal. A seal is supposed to give security. A seal is supposed to signify your that you're owned by somebody. I want you to think, if you're owned by the most powerful person in the universe, does he ever let his things go? Does he ever say, yep, you can go back? Um, that's not how it works. John 10 talks about how um, Jesus says, no one can snatch anyone out of my hand, and no one can snatch anyone out of the Father's hand. We talked about this two weeks ago. I quoted it, so I'm not quoting it now. Um, but what Jesus says is, it's like every Christian is like in my strong hand. And no one can snatch anyone out of my hand, Jesus says. But he also says, you're also in the Father's hand. And the way I want you to visualize it, so you got two hands over that person. No one can snatch anything out of the Father's hand. Right? If you're in Christ, if you're saved, no one's getting you out of there. Whether you or anybody else, or as Romans 8 says, whether life or death or persecution, you're, 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 you will never be separated from the love of Christ if you're in. But my point is, you can't be in unless you hear, unless you trust. But once, you're he once you hear, once you trust, God seals you. Now, I want you to write down some passages. I'm going to give you a lot of passages to write down right now, so get your pens ready. Um, I want to introduce you to who the 
the Bible says the Holy Spirit is, because he's very misunderstood. I think it's important for us to go over this. The Holy Spirit, um, first of all, is a person. Right? We, we see that very clearly, even in the rest of this book. Ephesians 4.30 talks about how God's Spirit is a person that we could grieve, we could make him sad. Right? Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Same concept as Ephesians 1, it's just later in the book. Um, so he's a person. Sometimes if you talk about the Holy Spirit like, like he's something that can like, come in and out of something, like that's not what's going on. He's a, he's a person. Uh, so you can make him happy, you can make him sad, just like you can any other person. Okay? Um, he's also called a he in the Bible. Okay? So another passage for you to write down. John 15, 26. John 15, 26, Jesus talked about him. He called him the helper in this text. He says, but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Okay, so all throughout John 14, 15, 16, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is called a he. So he's a person. He's an individual person. Just like the Father is an individual person, yet separate from Jesus the Son, and just like Jesus the Son is an individual person, yet separate from the Father, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is an individual person, yet separate from the Father and the Son. But here's what the, the, the gospel is very clear about, and even all of the, the New Testament and the Old Testament. Um, you got Father, Son, and Spirit. We call, we call that the, the Trinity. Yet they're all one. They're connected. Um, that's a very hard thing to understand, right? But that's what this text is clear about. Think about it. This text talks about how the Father has chosen, how the Son has redeemed, how the Spirit seals us. It's not just three different names for the same person, right? It's not like, um, you know, water being water vapor, uh, liquid water, solid ice. It's not like that, okay? Because that it changes forms, right? That's not what God is. God is always the Father. He is always the Son. He is always the Spirit. And they are always interacting with each other, yet they're one, okay? That's the mystery of the Bible. Hard to understand, if you can't wrap your mind around that, join the rest of us um, throughout all of history. But that's how the Bible presents God. Maybe one day you'll start to figure it out more. Um, maybe I'll figure it out more when we meet God. But you will never really understand it completely, I don't think. Um, but here's what we're saying. Spirit is an individual person. Just like you would say Jesus and the Father, they're different persons. right? They're not a different being, but they are different persons. I know that language is like seems like it's talking about the same thing. They're the same yet distinct. That's the Trinity. Hard to understand. This says that the Spirit was promised. I want to give you a couple of verses about that. The Spirit was promised in the Old Testament and in the New Testament before he came. T two passages for in the Old Testament. Isaiah 44, 3. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3. God says, For I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on a, the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So he's talking about people who will come later on. He says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my Spirit to them. Here's another more famous reference to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, 26. Ezekiel 36, 26. That's a passage you should get locked into your mind. Ezekiel 36, 26. Here's what it says. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. That's promised in the Old Testament. 
to say, one day, you know how it's really hard for you to obey me? You know how it's really hard? Okay, one day, I'm going to put my spirit to be within you, as close as a relationship as it gets, right? He could have said, he'll be with you, he'll be close to you. God, in the way that, of his wisdom, here's how he said, it's like this, he's going to be in you, so influential in you that he will cause you to obey his rules. By the way, that's exactly what the New Testament says about God's spirit. He works to, to create in us these good works that we couldn't have done without God's spirit, that now he's causing in us. I said the spirit was promised. He was promised by the prophets. He's also promised by Jesus. John 14, 16 says this. Um, this is Jesus talking. I will ask the Father. So the Son will ask the Father, and he, the Father, will give to you another helper, the Spirit, to be with you forever. So Jesus is about to leave, right? He's about to go back to God. And he says later on, it's a good thing for you if I leave. Because if I leave God the Son, I'll give to you God the Spirit. Because if God the Son sticks around, God the Father is not going to give God the Spirit. That's kind of confusing, but that's what the Bible says. God's Spirit convicts people of sin. So one of the reasons that some of you sit in sermons and like something feels off and wrong and you're like, oh man, I, I, I believe what's being said, but it, I feel like he's talking about me, right? The Bible says, John 16, 7 through 15, that God's Spirit works to like chisel on our hearts, right? Sometimes you feel it like... Um, you feel a sense of like, oh, like uneasiness, right? God's spirit is often the one who works that in you to try to bring you to salvation, right? Everyone who's a Christian can think back. I remember when I was uneasy about things and I had conviction over my sin. And I knew like, oh, something's not right, right? God's spirit, a person, is the one who's working that in people. I, I quoted you John 16, seven through 15. Here's the beginning of that. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So he's talking about the world, people who are not saved yet. Right? He's saying, I'm going to convict them of sin, that they've done wrong. Righteousness, that there is a righteous standard and then I've fallen short. And judgment, right? Judgment if I, if I don't get right with God. Then later on in that passage, he says, but to you guys, those of you who are in Christ, here's what the Spirit will do to you disciples. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will speak not on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak from God. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, what is mine, he will declare to you. Okay? Kind of confusing, but here's what Jesus is trying to say. God's Spirit will give to these disciples truth from God the Father and God the Son, and now give it to us. Okay? Do you know how God the Father and God the Son gave to the Spirit words to give to us? Do you know where God's Spirit gave them to us? Right here. Right? We find that later on in the Bible. Peter talks about in 2 Peter 1.20, that when people wrote God's word, they weren't just speaking their own opinions. They weren't just writing down their best thoughts about God. It says they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write exactly what God's Spirit wanted them to write. Okay? Now you might think, man, the Holy Spirit hasn't given me a great inspiration to write a bunch of things about God. Because that's not a promise necessarily for you. That was a promise to these disciples. Right? And what benefit do you have 
from that promise. You get to open up their words. Think about the, the privilege that we have to at all times be able to access the truth from God. You have a great blessing. I have a great blessing to be able to open my Bible whenever I want, whether it be at 3 in the morning or 12 noon on a Sunday morning. You can open up God's Word and read with your eyeballs God's truth on a, on a page. Like, that is amazing. That's something that even the prophets and the disciples would have envied. But he says that's how God's Spirit works. God the Father also utilizes God the Son through the Spirit to assure us of our salvation, right? And that's what this text is all about. He doesn't just say it here in Ephesians 1. He also says it in 2 Corinthians 1.22. He says the exact same thing. Um, he says, and who has also, God has also put his seal upon us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Um, it's a guarantee of what? Well, that God will save us in the end, that our sins will be taken care of. Here's my point with giving you all those verses. Um, I want you to understand who God the Spirit is. I know that's kind of theological and kind of diving deep on a very particular topic. But if people talk about how, you know, they, they feel God the Spirit or they don't want to offend God the Spirit, right, you got to understand what's biblical and what's not biblical. So those passages can kind of help you guide through some of that stuff. Here's the point, though, getting back to the main point of this text. Um, God the Spirit is supposed to assure you of your salvation, Okay? So if you see God the Spirit working in your life, that's supposed to be assurance. But on the flip side, don't be assured if you don't see God the Spirit working in your life. Here's some work that God the Spirit does in our life. Okay? Two verses for you to write down. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 5. 1 Thessalonians 4, or 1 Thessalonians 1, sorry, 4 to 5. says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. So here's what he's saying. I know that you're chosen. I know that you're beloved. I know that you're saved. You know why? Because I saw that when the gospel came to you, it changed you. And it wasn't just that the message changed you. God, the Spirit changed you. It came with full conviction. You were ready to give up your sin. You were ready to turn from idols. You were ready to serve the living God, as he's going to say later in that chapter. If someone looked at your life, let's talk about your siblings or your parents or people that are close to you. Can they look at you and say, oh, I know you're a Christian. I'm confident. <laughs> because, you know, when the gospel came to that girl or that guy, it came not just like with word or talk. It came with the spirit. I mean, there was conviction. They turned from sin. They stopped living their life like they were living it before. And now they live differently. Oh, yeah, for sure, I'm confident. Right? Think about the assurance that we give these Thessalonians. Paul looks at their life and says, oh, yeah, I'm confident they're saved. Look at how their life changed. Right? Maybe for you, right, think about your life. Would my parents be that confident about me? Would my siblings and my friends, would they be that confident in me that my life has changed and been transformed by God the Spirit? Am I confident? Here's some other things that God the Spirit does. Maybe the most famous verses about him. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, the fruit in the Bible just means something that comes later. Think about, change out the word fruit for the word produce. The produce of the Spirit, right? Produce, I like that word better because it's what's produced, right? When you go to the produce aisle, you see all the stuff that grew in the ground, right? Um, the cucumbers came from a cucumber plant, right? The carrots came from a carrot plant. Carrots are roots, right? And then they like shave them off to make them look all pretty, right? Baby carrots, uh, 
whatever. Point is, that's the produce, right? That's what was produced based on the, the soil and the, and the water and the photosynthesis and all that fun stuff with the chloroplast and, you know, however that works. I don't know. Remember that? Um, throwback. Uh, or maybe that's a vocab word that you had to write down for your bio class this fall. Uh, it's produce. That's what comes out of it. The produce of the Spirit is this. When you have God's Spirit in your life, what's the fruit? What's the produce that comes after that? What comes out of your life when God's Spirit is working on you? Here's what Paul says. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. He just lists some things there. But he says this is what happens when God's Spirit's working on someone's life. They start loving. They start having peace. They start being patient when before they wouldn't have been so patient. They start going out of their way to be kind to other people. There's goodness in their life. There's like holiness. They care about doing what's good and right. There's faithfulness. They keep their word. They're faithful to do what they promise to do. They're faithful to complete their assignments. Also gentleness. Or might, they might have before been violent or out of control. They're, they're gentle. And further, self-control. That they don't do everything they want to do. They don't follow the impulses of their flesh like they used to do. Those are just nine things, right? Here's the problem. Some of us look at the fruit of the Spirit and say, ooh, I can work on patience. Let me staple on some fruit to the, the branch of my tree. I'm going to try to be more patient. That's not the point of Galatians 5. Although I'd love for you to be more patient. That's not the point. Paul's saying this is what happens when God's Spirit is working in your life. You'll become patient. Right? That's what happens when you put a seed in the ground and put water on it and you give it the right sun. Fruit comes out of it. What he's not saying is try to take that fruit, grab a branch, and staple it onto your tree and hope that, oh, it's my fruit. It's not your fruit. It didn't come from the Spirit. Right? This is what we're saying. If you start to see those things, guess what? You should be so confident. You should walk out of this room today. You should sing this final song and say, oh, I'm so happy. God has chosen me. He's redeemed me. I'm saved. I know I'm saved. Because look at that. I wouldn't have been patient. I wouldn't have been joyful. But he created that in me. God's spirit was the one who was working that in me. That's how we should be. God's spirit is called the seal. He's also called the guarantee. I want you to understand that. That's point number four. What is the guarantee all about? Point number four is this. I want you to be confident you're saved for eternity because the Holy Spirit guarantees your eternal life. Now we're not just talking about salvation now. We're talking about forward-looking salvation. This is an interesting concept. Uh, that you have to kind of take a couple steps into your theology to understand, but I want you to try to grasp it this morning. Um, If you're a Christian, are you saved? You can answer this out loud if you want. If you're a Christian, are you saved? Yes, kind of, right? You are saved, um, but are you like saved, saved? Like, so you're redeemed. So do you have your new body yet? Well, no. Um, Are you sinless yet? No. Have you stood before God's judgment seat and now you're, now you're, you're good? You've passed that? Well, no. So you're saved, but, but you're not like saved in the end yet, right? You've been redeemed, but like God hasn't like finished all of it yet, right? You're sa- are you sanctified? First Corinthians 1 says you are sanctified. God calls you holy now. You're a saint, but are you like sanctified? Saint? Well, not completely yet. Are you redeemed? Yes. But will you be more? Yes. That's the, that's the weird stage we're at right now in history, right? That you can be saved, but also be saved in the future. That's why sometimes 
if you're confused about how the Bible says, and those who are being saved, and you're like, wait a minute, I thought salvation happened at a point in time. Yes, the hearing and believing and being redeemed at a moment, justification, that does happen at a moment in time. But sanctification is that process where we become more holy. So here's what we're getting at. When he says the guarantee of our inheritance, he says, how can you know you'll be saved in the end? How can you know your body will be remade in the end? How can you be confident that all of this is not a lie and that God will say, oh yeah, depart from me, I never knew you. You're not saved. How can you know for sure that's not gonna happen to you in the end? Final salvation. Sometimes it's called glorification, depending on what you're reading. The spirit is guaranteed. The word guarantee is the same thing as the word for a down payment. So if you're gonna buy a house or a car or something you know, big and expensive, here's what you would do. You would give a down payment. And what is a down payment? It's supposed to be a guarantee that you'll pay for the rest. When God's spirit is called a guarantee, what it means is it's a down payment. It's like, oh, how can you be sure I'm saved? Well, because God put his down payment on me. He said, you have the spirit. So God's not gonna take away that down payment, he's not going to default on that because it's too expensive. It's too valuable. Right? God doesn't give his spirit and indwell people with his spirit who will not be saved in the end. That's supposed to be the final assurance. Like, oh, I know God's not going to give up on me because God put his spirit on me. He wouldn't give up on someone that he's put his spirit on. Exactly. Romans 8 talks about this. We turned to this passage last time in small groups, so you could just jot it down. You don't have to turn there. But Romans 8, 14 through 17 talks about how everyone who's led by the spirit of God is a son of God, right? There's no children of God in this room right now that are not led by God's spirit. And there's no people in this room that are led by God's spirit and have a close relationship with God's spirit who are not sons of God, daughters of God yet. It says, but when we're led by the spirit, we're sons of God. We know that. In verse 16, Romans 8, 16 says, the spirit himself bears witness or tells the truth with our spirit that we are children of God. So that's talking about something interesting, a subjective reality, right? Not everything that's subjective is not real, just for you logic people, right? There are some things that are subjective yet true, right? But this is a subjective reality that we feel in our hearts that says, no, I'm confident. How are you confident? Well, because God, I, I'm, I'm confident, where does that come from? Well, sometimes it can come from sin. It can come from a lot of things. But this says, if you're a real Christian, God's spirit will make it clear to your spirit. That's who you are on the inside. I know I'm saved. I, I'm confident. That's God's spirit bearing witness to our spirit, that we are sons of God. Paul put it like this in Philippians 1. Philippians 1, 6, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God doesn't start to save people and then stop saving people completely does. The final redemption that he's talking about, I, I use the words eternal life, right? Because I thought those were the easiest to understand. They're, they're called a lot of different things in the Bible, but there's times in the rest of the New Testament where these authors say like, God's spirit is in you. And that's confirming that that redemption we talked about last week will really take place for you. Okay. In Romans eight twenty three, he says, you know, you're the first fruits of the spirit, which is the promise that you're going to have a redeemed new body in the end. You're going to live forever. Okay? Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 4. He says, for while we live in this tent, talking about our bodies that are broken, he says we groan, being burdened. 
Not that we would be unclothed or like not taken care of in the future, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us a spirit as a guarantee, as a down payment. How can you know you're going to live in a new body forever? Well, because God's spirit is in you right now. Well, what happens when you feel like you're not obeying God perfectly? What happens when you feel like things are hard, when you're going through trials? You're supposed to say, but I see God's spirit in my life, and that's a guarantee. It's a down payment. God would not give up on somebody that he's put this guarantee on. I said at the beginning that um, engagement rings are that symbol for us. It's the closest thing we have today, right, that says, look, it's a promise, and it's going to be there. Well, you know that you know, some people break engagements and some people give engagement rings back, and it's not a perfect promise today. But the reason I use that as an example is because in modern Greek, the word that's used here for guarantee is actually the word that they use for engagement ring. It's actually the same thing. So today, if you were going to a store and you were in Greece, right? That's pretty romantic, right? Uh, imagine you get engaged in Greece, right? If you're buying an engagement ring in Greece, you'd use this word, this word for guarantee. Down payment. I want to buy my down payment, my guarantee, my engagement ring. That word is the same word, and it's supposed to be for us something that we can look down at and say, yes, I'm confident I'm saved. So for you, if you can look at your life and see God's spirit working in your life, you're supposed to say, that's God's confidence that he's trying to put in me to say, I know that death will not take hold of me, that even though I die, I'm going to live forever that I'm going to have a perfect world, I'm going to have a perfect relationship with all my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm going to see Christ face to face, and how can I know that today? I know that because I see God's spirit working in my life, and I'm confident that God has saved me. That's what this is all about. So right now, we're going to sing one more song to the Lord, and I'd encourage you, as the band comes up, that if you have this confidence, that you would sing confidently, that you would have the right kind of mentality this morning to sing to God with confidence saying, I I know that he saved me and that he'll save me in the end. Let's pray right now. God, we're thankful that your word gives us clarity about your spirit. I pray that all of us would walk away from this text knowing for sure whether or not we are in or whether we're out, whether we're in Christ or whether we're not. I pray that we'd be honest with ourselves and if the spirit is not working in our hearts and there's no repentance and there's no turning from sin. I pray that we'd be honest enough to admit that and then go back to points one and two. Think about the gospel again and and believe in you, trust in you, call on you for the first time with a true heart. I pray that no one in this room would be too proud to assess whether or not they're right with you this morning. I pray also for the, the ones who know they're not right with you, I pray that they would stop fighting you. They'd stop running away from you, but they would turn to you and submit to you with their whole heart this morning. And that when they trust in you for salvation. I know that you will seal them with your Holy Spirit and keep them forever. Pray that that would be assurance to them this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.